Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. We are in the gospel according to Mark, chapter 15. And before I start, just to say, no Christian song makes any sense without knowledge of the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the love of God. And I think this is something that particularly you younger Christians, you teenage Christians, early 20s, need to be very mindful of. We are going to stand and take verses 33 through 41, the gospel according to Mark chapter 15. Would you stand please as we read the word of God, beginning at verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by, when they heard that, said, Look, he is calling Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed, his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out with his, saw that he cried out with his breath, breath, his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from afar among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joses, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Please be seated. The greatest death of all, that's what we're considering this morning, we only have four Gospels that give us the story of what happened. The others that have attempted to be Gospels flunked because of the test of truth, the integrity being absent, so we do not recognize other writings except the 27 New Testament writings we have for the New Testament, and of course the 39 for the Old. Prior to verse 33, as Christ has been crucified and he is there on the cross, they mocked him as a prophet, as a savior, and as the king. And uh, they had no idea, those who were against him, uh, who he was, who they were looking at, whom they, who they were abusing. And we all die, but none of us die like this. None of us die as the Christ died, and that's what we're going to consider this morning. Because of all the deaths of people, this is the greatest death of them all. Verse 33, now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Well, in verse 32, they were asking him for a miracle. Show us a miracle. Uh, you know, that uh, we can be impressed and still not believe you. Jesus said this was the case. In John's gospel, who John records this earlier in earlier events, 
Jesus said, but although, John writes, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. The very thing the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, who has believed our report? And this is what we're up against as believers. This is what uh, we are here to uh, deal with as believers. We are to deal with unbelief, not only in others, but in ourselves too. Uh, not dismiss it. Uh, there they were staring at God on the cross. Again, John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 45 this time. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. And they were looking at God. That is the manifestation of God. There certainly was more to God than what they were looking at, but it's God nonetheless, God the Son. <clears throat> and... Uh, they didn't get it, they didn't want to get it, and there are those today that they don't want the gospel to be true. It's hard to believe. Um, I remind you, if you are a Christian who is eager to share the gospel, many times you have to do as Nehemiah had to do, remove the rubbish before you can start building. And the work of removing all of the trash and junk and clutter that's in the way, the ruins that are in the way, can be nearly overwhelming at times. In fact, it was almost that way in the days of Nehemiah. So be prepared for that. And don't be discouraged by it. It says here now, when the sixth hour had come, noontime, halfway through the six hours on the cross that he would spend, there was darkness over the whole land, it tells us. This is a supernatural darkness, and it had to have been disturbing to the people that were witnessing this. How would you record that? How could you capture how disturbing it was if you weren't there? Uh, words don't do it justice, we would say. This time of darkness, while he is on the cross, parallels the cosmic signs that will accompany our Lord when he returns. And we read about that in chapter 13, that uh, there would be these uh, supernatural events as he returns. Uh, darkness is a mark of judgment in the scripture. Isaiah spoke of it, Joel spoke of it, Amos, Zephaniah, uh, the New Testament speaks of it, and it is also the meaning here. It is divine judgment that is falling upon the Son of God uh, for us, for sinners, the one whom we love so much. Peter writes in his second letter, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. The point is, this is very serious. We are not to just pass over this lightly. Uh, uh, this is something that uh, we helps us stay in touch with what's going on. So that we don't become those who have heard the gospel story so much, it really doesn't move us anymore. It's a risk. It's, it's, you know, that's how human beings are made. Uh, darkness, this darkness that was, they were experiencing, it was the darkness that you, uh, you could feel. Darkness can be felt, the Bible teaches. Exodus chapter 10. Uh, this, of course, is when the Jews were still in Egypt. And Moses was dealing with Pharaoh to get the Jews out of Egypt. And the plagues were slamming into the Egyptian people because of the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven. 
that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. This is pretty serious. Darkness can be overwhelming. It overwhelmed Abraham, Genesis chapter 15. Now when the sun had when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell on him. Uh, here's the Holy Spirit keeping the moment alive for us you know, thousands of years later. Uh, 2,000 years later, here we are reading, and, and he is saying to us, darkness fell on the land as your Savior hung on the cross. The work of creation was done in the light. God said in Genesis chapter 3, uh, so, pardon me, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, then God said, let there be light. And then he began to create, and the story goes, goes on, the, next, the six days of creation. Well, the work of creation was done in the light, but the work of redemption is now being done in the dark. All creation, sympathizing with the Creator as he suffered. Because as we'll get to, the earthquake, the rocks split, the darkness was present, the temple veil was torn. There was a lot of spiritual activity taking place around these events. And they would have been wasted had not somebody witnessed it and recorded it. And these recordings are not to be wasted by us. I do believe that all the Bible is there for us to, to study, to investigate, to learn from, to grow from, to use is what I'm saying. This darkness is not uh, an eclipse. It is a miracle. A lunar uh, eclipse uh, would not happen on a full moon, and the Passover came at a full moon. Not a solar eclipse, because this lasted for three hours, not for a few minutes. This was a divine act of God. They had asked for a miracle. Well, here it was. And they weren't getting it, because unbelief is serious stuff. Maybe you're sitting, maybe, you know, how, well, let me ask, put it this way. How many people, how many children are in good churches across the planet? And there are churches, there's God's remnant at the very least. And they're just, they're not moved by the things of God. Their, their unbelief won't let them listen to what is being said and apply it to their lives. So that they could learn to grow and uh, live their lives pursue their future, but not without holiness or the pursuit of and the struggles that come with it. If anyone tells you that the Christian life is this beautifully, wonderfully peaceful thing, they don't know what they're talking about. The Christian life is full of conflict. Uh, so, and it is uh, conflict on, on multiple levels, inner and outer. Uh, there are those that we want to see saved once we have the knowledge of, the, of our Savior, uh, but they don't get saved oftentimes, at least not very easily, and, and the war is on. Would, so I'm speaking to you younger Christians. Would you rather me lie to you and tell you it's okay to dismiss the things of God? It's okay for you to come to church and, and uh, wander in your mind about other things and not listen to what God might be saying to you personally? Do you think it's okay to be born in a place where you are being exposed to spiritual truths and uh, you don't appreciate them. I don't think that's okay. And I know you would not either. And I'm not saying this to make you feel bad. I'm saying this to stir you up and keep you stirred. Back to this darkness. God saying something to mankind through this. 
the ninth plague in Egypt, as I already read about. Uh, God brought three days of darkness, darkness that you could feel on the Egyptians. That was the last plague. Well, next to the last plague. Followed by, of course, the death of the firstborn, which we are seeing here. The only begotten son of the father. Uh, the lamb of God was giving his life for the sins of the world. He's giving his life for my sin. He's giving his life for me. Not only me, not only my sin, but it is for me. It is personal. It is supposed to be personal. Uh, when you preach Christ, do you preach about what other people believe, or do you preach about what you believe? Hopefully, it's what you believe. Uh, my thought is, in sharing the gospel, the people that are listening to the gospel being shared are responding to your level of excitement, enthusiasm, your belief. Uh, how would it be if you said, yeah, Jesus is my Savior, and you know, it would be good if you got saved too. Anyway, what's for lunch? But if you say, oh, the Lord, he is my Savior, and I love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I hate when I fail him, but I love that he does not toss me away when I fail, and I fail a lot. And I want this God to be your God. I want this Savior to be your Savior. I want your sins dealt with as he has dealt with my sins. Not only has God passed over my sins, but he's willed them out of his existence. That's some serious stuff. Well, you put it like that. We even have a phrase, and I just use it. Well, when you say it like that, because people do respond to people. Otherwise, the gospel would be, uh, you couldn't preach it with any degree of success. This darkness was a sign and a warning that judgment was coming and men better be ready to receive the blessings or receive the curse. Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived in these days, he says that the lambs were killed from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. 3 p.m. is when Christ, of course, gave up the spirit. Darkness lasted for the three hours beginning at noon until 3, the time of the evening sacrifice. Also, the Jews prayed three times a day. In Daniel 6, we read, And he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed, and we're told as it was his custom. Peter, the apostle. We find him and John going into the temple in Acts chapter 3, at 3 p.m., for the hour of prayer. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, or 3 p.m., Luke using a different standard, uh, using the Gentile standard rather than the Jewish time, and that would account for the discrepancy of the ninth hour versus the sixth uh, hour. How, when, when you come across them different times in the Scripture, it's no contradiction I think I've confused everybody sufficiently there. We can move on now. <laughs> we find, incidentally, Peter in the book of Acts praying at some point at each interval of prayer. And at, in Acts chapter 2, he's, at morning, he's praying in the morning, 9 a.m. In, in the morning. In, in Acts chapter 9, it's at 12 noon. And as I just read in Acts chapter 3, it is 3 p.m. Those things mean something to us. They're supposed to. Verse 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated by God, my God, have, why have you forsaken me? Now it's between him and his father. 
Really, the first three hours of the cross was about Christ and the people around him. And the last three hours, when that darkness fell, it intensified, and it became more about the Lord and his Father. And uh, Jesus here is calling to the Father from darkness. Prayer, at the time of prayer, when it was dark. We know about that, don't we? We know about if you've been a Christian any length of time, when times are very at their, when they're at their darkest, praying to God, asking, "What are you doing? Why are you leaving me? Why are you not with me? Why do I feel like you have abandoned me?" Here is Christ; he never sinned, and yet he has made sin, according to Second Corinthians chapter five, the ultimate horror. That he is experiencing. That we, we cannot understand this in its entirety. We can just accept the, what's on the surface about it. But we really cannot enter into this. This is beyond us. When he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is the Aramaic language, which was the vernacular of the people at that time. He's speaking in the common language, but he's still quoting scripture. And what a lesson to us. Christ is saying, here I am on the cross, dying for the sins of others, I'm innocent, they're guilty, I'm taking their sin. The Father has left me to feel that he has abandoned me because the sin is on me. And yet, he's still quoting scripture. He's still praying. He may feel that God has abandoned him, that's what he is expressing. And yet, he is not abandoning God. Job said it very simply, though he slay me, I will trust in him. Psalm 22 is what he is quoting. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groanings? So the psalmist knew what it was like to feel that God had turned his back on him. And instead of turning, uh, you know, being bitter and and vengeful and turning the back on God, which would be foolish, as the Proverbs teach, who's hardened themselves against God and prospered, the answer, of course, is no one. Instead of turning his back on God, he throws out more faith. As we say, he doubles down. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And yet I'm still calling to you. It's what the righteous do. We can't live without prayer. As frustrated as we might be with having to wait for God's processes to unfold, we cannot live without prayer because we cannot live without God because we have seen God in our spirit, our heart. Mark has been connecting these messianic prophecies and showing their fulfillment in Jesus Messiah. The others too, but Mark is doing that here. When he is recording for us that Christ is quoting scripture from the cross as he is dying. These are the last recorded words of our Lord in Mark's gospel. Uh, The others give us more. So let's review the seven statements of Christ from the cross in sequence as compiled in the gospels. There was the first word from the cross... And this was concerning those who had nailed him to the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. We're going to see that come back into the story. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Of course, he's saying that to one of the two outlaws who had asked to be with him, who had repented while dying on the cross, a deathbed confession. God not only 
honors those, he values them. The worldling would say, what do you mean? You live a whole life and then, you know, at your deathbed you get to have it all washed away? That's not fair. Well, that's the easy response to that. Are you kidding me? What's fair about God getting you into heaven? I mean, you want to talk fairness, you need to go to hell. But we're not talking fairness, we're talking love. We're talking the grace and mercy of God. We're talking about a God who understands what's going on and wants you to get it too. And if you don't get it, he'll move forward without you. There are some very serious things that belong to interacting with God. There are some very serious things that belong to being born. And uh, this is the gospel story. The third word from the cross is Christ on behalf of Mary, his mother, to John, his disciple. Woman, behold your son. And then he said to John, behold your mother. And from that day forward, she began to live in the house of John. He was looking at, out for her and he's preaching to us. Even though I'm dying, there's still things to do. There's still work. There's still this care for others who are not at the moment dying. He's not making it all about him when he could. And then the fourth word from the cross, which now takes it away from the interaction so much with the humans, is now he's dealing more with the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the fourth word from the cross. And then there was the last word of his humanity. I thirst. And then he said, it is finished. It's done. It's complete. And the last word from the cross, the seventh one, is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He gave up the spirit. So again, the first three hours, he agonized before men. And the last three hours in darkness, he agonized before God his Father. There are lessons all over this for us when we go through darkness in this life. And we are going to face darkness from time to time in this life. Of course, of course, the bottom line is there is a resurrection of the righteous. There is a resurrection of those made just because of what Jesus did. John, uh, Mark, he translates this Aramaic word into the Greek, which we have translated now into the English, unless maybe you're reading a Bible in a different language, which is quite possible. He says, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was important to get into the scripture. Peter, he's going to feel this way. All of them felt this way. They didn't know what happened. It's just a short while ago, they were there dining with him and hadn't even been 24 hours yet. It was just washing their feet. Suddenly, he's on the cross. And all their, their whole life changed. Just like that. He now felt that darkness of being unloved by the one he loved. He felt what it was like to be a sinner without hope. He was taking it all for us. One of our greatest needs as, as people, as human beings, is to feel loved by the one we love. God himself seeks our love. The Bible is about loving God, loving each other. We can live without love, but we cannot live well without love. And those who are not being loved, they can become quite a problem in life for others. 
uh, you know, just the indecent people becoming savage. Love is a big deal, and where it is absent, there is trouble in its place. It becomes Satan's playground. And as you're growing up in life, you don't know these things yet, and you have to learn them. And this would account for sometimes our youth being just absolute knuckleheads in their youth. They've not yet figured these things out. But give them some time and some instruction and love and patience. And that's ministry. And this is how it is done. You don't have to like it or approve of it. It's how it is done. You do have to face it. And, uh, you know, the, the feeling of wanting to retaliate against somebody, it's a natural feeling. It's just not a spiritual feeling. It's the flesh. And uh, we Christians, we know when we get like that, we're wrong and we work. We scramble to fix it because we believe it's worth it, because we believe Christ is worth it. In his humanity, he alone, there on the cross at this time now, unloved, Now, he wasn't alone. There were humans there. But between the Father, when he makes this cry, this is what he's experiencing for the first time in his humanity. Because he was not alone, there were those, the women were there. John was there. Even Peter was there. We'll get to that later. But he was in the background. The final cry of his humanity at this point, I thirst. And he never resented being made the sacrifice. How unlike us, right? We serve the Lord and we feel like we're not appreciated. We get, you know, we become bitter. Leave the church, leave the ministry. I'm not serving anymore. I said, I'm done. Exactly what Satan wants us to do most of the time, not what God wants us to do. I think, you know, you can hear an angel giggling sometimes saying, where's his backbone? That's all it took to take him out? I didn't know you could take out a fighter jet with a paper clip. I don't want to be that kind of Christian. But that doesn't take away the pain. I can say, no, I'm not. I'm going to keep serving. It's just not as much fun. (laughs) When was it supposed to be fun? When was the cross of Christ supposed to be fun? He never resented the shame and the filth of our sin on him. He faced it. Isaiah 53, he shall see the travail of his soul. The new King James has the labor. The old King James has the travail. And that's a closer meaning to the, how it is formed in the Hebrew. It is a labor, but it is a hard labor. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. God was careful to put that in the Bible for us. He was careful to say that he is going to be crucified for you. And he's not going to be bitter about it. He's not going to have that, you know, this is another fine mess you've gotten me into kind of a response. It says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. He shall take it. And he does. Death, the last enemy. It stirs doubt. But that doubt can be overcome. Luke writes this. He says, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. That, so you go to the book of Revelation, and these angels are always in a loud voice saying something. They're always bellowing it out with just such force and such strength. So much so it captures our attention. And another angel said with a loud voice, it's thunderous. And here he is dying, and incidentally, P. 
People didn't die in six hours on the cross. They lingered for days. Uh, this, of course, mar- was something that Pilate was impressed. He took notice of that. He's dead already? Yeah, because he didn't die. He gave up his spirit. He walked out on you. You don't get the satisfaction of saying you killed the Son of God. He's demonstrating that you might call it death, but he gave up the spirit, his humanity. He dismissed it. I'm done with you. And where Luke now writes about, uh, into your hands I commit my spirit. It was, he was total control with a loud voice he is doing these things. Being forsaken by God, bearing the punishment of sin. And uh, this is not fiction. This is fact. Verse 35. Some of those who stood by, when they heard that, said, look, he is calling for Elijah. I should say, while I'm speaking about these things, I want to be very careful not to try to whip up the audience emotions. Just stick to the facts, the truth, and those theatrics. To try to get you to appeal to, you know, to make you cry over this or something. Uh, I, I don't want to do that. I want us to just look at the facts and face them uh, with, in truth and love. And all that is, uh, goes into being a disciple of Christ. In verse 35, I'll reread it. Some of those who stood by when they heard that said he uh, looked. All right, I've got to start that again. Let's do that again. This is, you know, it would be nice to have a director here. Say, cut! And then, okay, do it again. So that's what we're doing. Uh, verse 35, some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Now the bystanders who, of course, misunderstood what he was saying. When he said, Eloi, Eloi, they thought he was saying, Elijah, Eli, for Elijah, Elijah. And uh, uh, so they're not putting anything together. Many Jews did believe Elijah would come back because he was taken away in a chariot of fire. And Malachi chapter 4 talks about Elijah coming back. Uh, Verse 36 Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. Well, the voices are interrupted when they're saying, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone runs to to get the reed, the the, the sponge for him, and then someone else talks again. So if you kind of you you can kind of miss that if you don't if you read over it too quickly. But that's what's going on. Going on here, there is present some unnamed soul that has some compassion. He ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine. Why not, why not a cup on a stick, for example? Well, on a T-shaped cross like he was on, it would be very difficult to tilt his head back to take a drink. And so the, the, the sponge would make up for that. It would, would allow the individual on the cross to uh, still get some moisture uh, that way. Psalm 69, because this is a prophetic moment being fulfilled, they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And of course, that verse is applied to this moment here, uh, where it says, uh, saying, let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. So the voice is, these voices are happening around this person trying to uh, give him 
some relief on the cross. The mockery is this. Let the forerunner come and save the precious Messiah. That's the bitterness that's, that's in their tone. This was entertainment for them. And, uh, of course, it's that way to this day in many ways. Verse 37, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Again, that deliberate act. He is uh, sovereign in dismissing his humanity. Luke twenty three forty six. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That is, the bone, the flesh, and the blood, those things that limited his sovereignty, he is now uh, getting rid of, exiting the body. Without dying, as we die, dying nonetheless, he tasted death. Uh, John chapter 10, Jesus makes it clear, no one takes my life, I'm, I'm going to give it up. Hebrews chapter 2, this is a very special phrase here, He's, he says, we see Jesus. Here's Paul writing to the Hebrews, and he is saying, We see Jesus for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. That's what he was doing on the cross. So that Jesus said, Whoever believes in me will not die. It's a transition. When the believer dies, it's it's a step out of here and into there. It's just like that. We'll have to wait to see it. Uh, you don't get to try it out and come back and write a book on it. Uh, if you get a book on, you know, I saw a light and a near-death experience, throw it in the trash. Better still, bring it to the bonfire. <laughs> I mean, it's just utter nonsense. Uh, it, it, I don't care how sincere. You may say, "What well, I had that happen to me. So, does that make it Scripture? Of course not. Uh, And you say, I'm offended by that. Well, I don't mean to offend you, but uh, the truth really doesn't care. Again, you know, the facts are the facts. We start going down that road, then everybody can start making up all sorts of things. So you open up a door for Satan by adding things to Scripture that shouldn't be, or treating things as though they were Scripture because you experience them. You can experience a lot of things that are foul, but you think they're holy. Otherwise, there would be no people walking upstairs on their knees telling you they've seen the face of Jesus in sandwiches or something like that. And so we come along and we, we shut down those false emotions. I, I like to laugh. I love my emotions when they're riding high. I don't appreciate it when someone manipulates my emotions, though. And so back to uh, these verses uh, which I think are beautiful enough. Verse 38, Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was that massive curtain that was in the Jewish temple between the holiest place of the temple and the holy place. Only the priests got to go into this chamber, these rooms in the temple. The courtyards were free for everyone. You'd go into the first section, and the lampstand was to your left, and there was the showbread to your right, and, and uh, then a little further up was the golden altar where the incense was offered, and then there was the curtain. There was a barrier, the holiest of holy places where the Ark of the Covenant was. The high priest could go in only once a year, once a year to atone for the sins of the people. So it's very special. And to have that curtain torn on this day, at this time, is very significant. You would think that one of the, that the high priests would say, uh-oh, we got this wrong. But unbelief is that 
that uh, f serious of an, an opponent. Exodus 26 tells us about this veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. And it's very significant that it is tearing as Christ has died for our sins. It's signifying that the way into God's presence is open through his Son. When Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. The veil is moved and we come to God, to the holiest of holies, through Christ. So he had asked for a sign. They got a few of them. And it was wasted on them. So you're listening to a good sermon. Is it wasted on you? I don't necessarily mean now, though I do not exclude now. But, I mean, wherever you are, maybe you're, you're sitting in a car and someone's listening to someone else preach a good sermon. That, that can happen. Other men are able to preach good sermons. <laughs> I've never heard it happen. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Press my luck. <clears throat> anyway. As I've already mentioned, the sun was darkened, the veil was torn, the rocks were split, the earth quaked. This was radical. Matthew writes this, he says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earthquake, and the rocks were split. God was not pleased with sin and what was going on. I think more so that uh, men weren't seeing. They had every reason to see who he was. Jesus said, you know, if they, don't, if they don't sing these praises, the very rocks will cry out. And here they are. The rocks split. These were signs of God's displeasure. And, it, you know, when God gave the law, there was, it was also accompanied by such uh, extreme events. At Mount Sinai, the earth did quake also. But the law is fulfilled. In Christ, and the curse is removed. Romans 10, 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so we can talk about the atonement, but while we talk about the atonement, we know that our sins are not only pardoned, they're canceled. As I mentioned, they're made to not be. The creator of the universe has uncreated my sin because of his son, wills them out of existence. This is some serious forgiveness. This is why Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And he comes along and says, you're really not forgiven. God can't forgive that kind of sin. You've been forgiven for this sin too many times. You don't get another time. This is the lie of Satan, the accuser of the brethren, because he hates the fact that he cannot undo what has been done with this death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, many of us fall for it. We fall for the, the, the lies of the, of the devil, and we walk around with the guilt. And I'm not saying this is, in, you know, not at all, not teaching lawlessness. Our motivation for loving, uh, for obedience, really is based on love. The love of God, that he loves me so much, I don't want to offend him. And there's some other things involved too, but that is the bottom line. Truth is not enough. You're too rigid, too hard. If God just gave me truth and no love, I wouldn't have a chance. 
But this love is demonstrated, as the Bible clearly says. Now, most of you know this, and yet you still like hearing it. I know I'm not boring you by repeating these essential facts of the cross. What a challenging task for a man to go into the pulpit and talk about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Who is worthy for that? Well, we're made worthy by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you couldn't preach to unbelievers. You couldn't lead a soul to Christ. God has set this up, and it is magnificent. But we have to see it as such. That helps a lot to be free, to know that, listen, you're going to mess up, but that's okay. You know, tell a little child, you're teaching a child something, you say, it's okay if you mess this up. And then they could just freely move and, you know, wreck the place. And it'd be fun, you know. I mean, anyway, let's move on. So from that moment, the cross, it either admits you to God with the temple veil torn, or you are excluded because you won't go in through Jesus Christ. uh, We are free from that entire sacrificial system. Hebrews 8, a new covenant or the New Testament. He has made the first obsolete, that is the Old Testament, that the symbol, uh, not the symbols, the, the sacrificial system. The lessons are still there for us. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And that is, again, Paul telling the Jews to stop being Jews and to now start being Christians. That's what the Hebrew letter is all about. Heaven is out of the question if Jesus Christ is rejected. That is the teaching of the scripture. Verse 39, so when the centurion stood opposite him, saw that, he cried out, I need to, I'm having some tough times up here this morning. It's just some, you know, it's just baseball, you just strike out. Go to the dugout. Here you go. Boy, look at that guy. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like that, like this, and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. None of the uh, gospel writers say, and he died, not in the gospel stories. Uh, Paul and others will, will give that in the preaching. But they, they don't, because they're, they're focused on, no, he really didn't die. He gave up the spirit kind of a thing. Uh, but uh, Matthew 27, so when the centurion and those with him were, who were guarding Jesus. So evidently, not only did the centurion come to this realization, truly this man was the son of God, but those Roman soldiers with him uh, also took hold of this view. So he is speaking for the men. There was this revelation. And we don't, re- we don't read about it again in the Bible because they're not the centerpiece of the story. That's one reason why. And... Uh, you know, what happens to them is anybody's guess. But if you're reading this and you've not given your life to Christ, then what's going to happen to you is more of an important question than what happened to them. Did they truly believe at the cross? Uh, did it last? Or did they go back to their Roman ways? Uh, what's going to happen to you when you come and you listen to the gospel preached by, by someone are you going to, you know, say, wow, that was pretty deep. I, I can see it. And then go back to your ways like it never happened. Quite challenging. Verse 40 now. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene 
Mary the mother of James the less, and Joses, and Salome. Uh, well, the, as verse 41 will tell us, and, the other, and Matthew also, there were many women from Galilee. Earlier, these women had been right up close to the cross, but they withdrew because it's just too painful to be that close to him in agony. And so they move back far. Uh, John chapter 19 gives us that they were, that's where Jesus could say to Mary, behold your son. If she were far away, wouldn't work. Many broken hearts were at the cross on this day. And again, uh, everything happened so suddenly. These women were told they loved him. They provided for the Lord material, uh, his material needs. And there they were going about their business. And they were told he's been arrested. And then within hours, they crucified him. Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Josie's. This distinguishes one Mary. Everybody was named Mary. Uh, there's a lot of Marys going on. Some of the men were named Mary. Uh, no, they weren't. <laughs> But it was a very common name. And uh, James Aless, the son of Alphaeus and Matthew, he's one of the apostles. Uh, that's his mom there. Uh, so this, there's a lot of family was plugged into the ministry of Christ. And uh, here it says in verse 41, who also followed, who followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So... The, the Galilean ministry was very, it was more successful than the Judean, the, the Jerusalem ministry. Uh, and these women, they provided for his needs. They they gave money to him. They likely gave food, shopped for food, prepared food from time to time. There's a lot of activity going on. Their husbands would share in this. Their husbands were very much a part of this also. Now, I, I often read in, in the commentators, you know, they all take a chance. Well, the women were at the cross, but the men fled. And they just always, any chance they get to make those apostles look bad. It seems like they take it. I don't share that view. Uh, just because it doesn't say they were there doesn't mean they were not. And I'll get to why I believe that in a moment. But uh, they, the women could get away with standing there. Nobody's going to come and arrest them and crucify them. But the guys, they had a higher risk at this time. And they knew that. Well, the money that these ladies gave to the Lord for the ministry was kept in a box, and Judas kept that box. And, of course, the Lord knew that he was uh, helping himself to what these women had offered him, and that worked against Judas. But Peter, when he writes to the church, the persecuted church, he says, I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Well, he couldn't write that if he weren't there. Uh, John will close out his gospel saying, I, I saw all this happen. Well, we know John is there because he's addressed. But if Peter, somewhere in the crowd, was there, we have every reason to believe so were the other apostles. Maybe Thomas. <laughs> I don't know what Thomas. I, uh, Thomas was an. Uh, thank you, Lord, for a man like Thomas in the Bible. He was the missing man. When everybody else was where they were supposed to be, Thomas was missing. And I can identify with that because I know some of you. <laughs> well, this is the death unlike any other. And even though it is common to us now because we, we sing about it, we read about it, we're very knowledgeable about it, may it never become something that is boring to us and not, and not exciting. 
It uh, is everything to do with Christianity. Let's pray. Our Father, um, thank you. What else can we say? What else can be said to you who have every right to create people with a free will and then seeing what they do with that free will and disobeying you Instead of backing down, you go forward. You provide a solution. You have a superior response to sin. And uh, we who believe, we know it, we love it. If you uh, have never opened your heart to Christ, there still is a barrier between you and your eternal salvation. You will live forever, but where? Hell is a dark place. There's nothing attractive about it whatsoever. There's nothing good to say about it. If you think you can do well in this life when faced with hardship, you will not do well in the next life when faced with hell. And so God who died for you invites you to come, to come to him, to believe, to stop trusting in your own opinions and listen to the revelation of God. If you'd like to open your heart to Lord, to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you'd like the barrier to be torn out of the way, then you have to make this prayer and you have to mean it. You have to say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your laws. I've proven myself to be untrustworthy in your presence. And I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to forgive me because Jesus Christ died as me in my place I ask you to forgive me and receive me as your own from this day forward. That you would be not only the one that saves my soul, but rules over my my life and my destiny and my eternity. I give my life to you. And now, Father, if anyone has made that prayer this morning, may they not be ashamed of it ever. May they be quick to make it known. We commit these things into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.